SequelCast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. This is a vintage episode of SequelCast 2 and Friends. Audio quality may not be up to current standards. We apologize for the nastier audio artifacts. Good, Anakin, good. (laughs) Kill him. Kill him now. I shouldn't. Do it. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. The sequel cast is a show that looks at movies in a franchise one film at a time. We are looking at the Star Wars saga and uh, this time around we're taking a look at uh, Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. It's a film that was released in 2005 and directed by George Lucas and what am I doing here? Starring, starring. Yeah, starring Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, Hayden Christensen, Ian McDermott. Pretty much most of the same cast as Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Off a budget of $113 million, made $848 million worldwide. Uh, check out our website at SequelCast.com. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark with a C. And SequelCast is part of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Check out more of those at BattleshipPretension.com. With me is Thrasher. Hello, my young friends. <laughs> Uh, BJ. This is not the BJ you're looking for. Uh, that sounds terrible out of context, <laughs> BJ. Um, yeah, let's, let's strike that. Um, but maybe I don't have a witty response other than that. I'm sorry. That's fine. And uh, we have a very special guest on the show today, Nathan P. Butler, who not only did he write the uh, Star Wars Tales story equals and opposites, he's been doing Star Wars podcasting in some form for... Uh, Basically, since podcasting started, with his uh, his latest podcast is Star Wars Beyond the Films. Nathan, welcome to the sequel cast. Hey, glad to be here. So, Revenge of the Sith. I think going into that, I almost felt as much of a build up as I did going into Phantom Menace because it was like, ooh, this is going to be the last live action one, or that's what people thought at the time. I. Out of all of the new trilogy, this is the only one that I didn't see midnight opening day. I don't think I actually saw this in in the theaters until it had been out for almost two weeks. I like, thought we I, had gone I, to see this, Thrasher. I thought this was something we did at, uh, in Savannah. Uh, no, that was – I think that was episode two. No, I remember episode two I saw right before I went to Savannah. And this was – this oh. would have been – hey, Thr- hey – uh, yeah, Matt. What? When did this come out in uh, in uh, two thousand five? Uh, it would have been May May fifteenth. Or wait, May nineteenth, two thousand five. Okay. Yeah, I know why. I, I know why. I have no. Con- I don't remember. So I'll leave that for another time. It's another story. Right. So, uh, 
Nathan, going when you went in to see Revenge of the Sith at the theater for the first time, did you sort of wonder how are they going to wrap up all these uh, characters and everything in just one film? Well, you know, I was looking forward to it, and I think that was the question that was on most Star Wars fans' minds leading up to about, I guess, April of 2005, at which point we kind of had to choose. Star Wars does this massive media blitz about one month before the release of any new film. So if you actually want to read the book, read the comic, play the video game, see the kids' books, or do pretty much anything to spoil, your, spoil yourself, excuse me, uh, it's all right there within a month of the release. And uh, I was so excited for this one, so hyped up about it, that I wound up listening to the unabridged audiobook uh, and at times jumping through chapters of the novelization uh, by Matthew Stover, who did a, an amazing job at taking this film and giving a little bit more depth to certain scenes. So I went into this knowing what to expect from a story standpoint, not being quite sure visually, and having what I sometimes refer to as the Stover effect, which is basically that I know a lot of people feel like the film went too fast or that it was weak in some points. To me, I had all this extra background already in my head from what Matthew so Stover so brilliantly wrote, which meant that I think I came out of it maybe um, better off than a lot of other fans did at the time. I mean, yeah, when I can recall of reading that novel, that opening dogfight almost goes for a quarter of the novel, all the opening of rescuing uh, Palpatine and so forth. Yeah, it's a massive, massive sequence. I mean, the novel itself is pretty big for a Star Wars novelization, but they've got the uh, the chance to elaborate and to do, they do some great things with things like a, this is what it feels like to be Anakin Skywalker right now. And then you really get insights into the characters, their thoughts. There's a an ongoing uh, analogy of like a dragon inside Anakin and sort of the darkness trying to get out. Uh, I was very impressed with it, but of course that left no surprise when we got to theater except for, oh, hey, that sequence from the novel, that's not on film. So I guess that was added. That's about the biggest surprise that was left. <laughs> I was really amused by a lot of the merchandising of uh, Revenge of the Sith at the time where it, a lot of it was heavily focused on Darth Vader, like him against a, a burning fire background. When the character, you know, as people know him from the uh, original trilogy, is only there for probably less than five minutes worth of screen time. I'd say less than a minute. Yeah, well, I can see why they focused on that in a lot of the, the marketing and the posters and all those things. It's a, BJ, what did you think, uh, you know, walking into Revenge of the Sith? Did you have a lot of anticipation? Were you kind of nervous? Hello? BJ. I, oh. I'll answer that question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I guess, and, and we, we actually touched on this in our uh, Disney by Star Wars special episodes, but by the time Revenge of the Sith came out, I was just very tired. Not just tired with Star Wars as a franchise, because I did feel a bit let down by the by the first two films in the new trilogy, but also I was just, I was in one of the darkest places of my life. I'd been out of college for a year, my career and prospect were just going nowhere. I had, I was hired to do one terrible job and found myself doing three terrible jobs for the pay of one terrible job. But, um, so I, I, I came in, I came into to episode three and that 
opening dogfight blew me away, and and that dogfight and all the stuff with General Grievous at the beginning of this movie, there was a part of me that that loved what I was seeing, but was also pissed off that I hadn't seen this two movies ago. It's like in in that opening sequence was everything I think I ever wanted to see in a uh, in a Star Wars prequel, and I, I felt I was felt kind of upset that I had to wait this long to get it to the point where I probably didn't enjoy it as much as I should have, because it is a top-quality uh, opening to this movie. I think what made it even better is if you saw the uh, the Clone Wars cartoon beforehand, where they do that, the immediately preceding events. Mm. I, I miss that. You kind of get a little better stuff. sense of General Grievous, and you kind of have a little more background on him. And like, like Darth Maul or everybody else, you, you don't get a lot of background on these villains. In the prequels, you get like a movie's worth, maybe, and then you kill them off like Boba Fett. It's funny because the way that I mean, there's there's I guess divisions within Star Wars fandom, you could say, and there's a lot of us that are what you might call the expanded universe fiends out there. You know, all about the the, the novels and the comics and everything like that. So we, of course, got very much into the Gindi Tartakovsky Clone Wars micro series that you're talking about, the Samurai Jack guy doing Star Wars, which was awesome. Um, but we also had, I mean, we had a lead up with a novel called Labyrinth of Evil. We had web strips going on at the time. I mean, this was a, a huge marketing blitz that they had out there. But I guess Star Wars fans always now go into new films, new episodes of the cartoon show, as we're seeing as this season ends of the Clone Wars, with sort of this trepidation of thinking, okay, there is all this stuff. I think I know this. I think it's true. Mm. Now, what is Lucas going to decide to change? And in this case, okay, we I have to ask with- you though, because you mentioned that, who do you think the Jedi saboteur is? I gotta ask, because I think I know who it is. I, <laughs> I I'd rather not say because I know. Oh, Ooh. see, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't watched. I, I think it, it, it I know, hasn't like, been released. That Teletoon, the Cartoon Network, and I grabbed about this in Republic Forces Radio Network, and I'm sure they're gonna laugh when they hear it, but. Uh, there is a 30-second preview on Teletoon, the Canadian Cartoon Network, where at the very end you see Anakin fighting the saboteur with the saboteur's cloak off. And by looking just at the back of the character's head, yeah, you can tell who it is. Teletoon did a great job spoiling it. Very much like, I guess, you know, they do with the films. Only this time, I hope it was unintentionally. Hmm. That is pretty. I, I'm gonna actually. I'm gonna look that up after we're done recording. See, I don't want to look now. I, I, I don't mind speculating, but I don't actually want to spoil it. Like it's one of those things where I, I'm excited to see you. That is, I think. I mean, I guess we'll get this into this when we get into our our spinoffs show. Me ranting about how awesome Clone Wars actually is. Cool. I mean, I'll be really interested to see with the Clone Wars series. Hopefully, it'll get picked up for another season with the whole the Disney acquisition of the Lucasfilm and all the properties. Yeah, season five has been pretty interesting. This last little bit with the you know who's the traitor and and who's the saboteur that sort of thing. Um, I actually this weekend or this week have had some pretty quick holy crap emails fired back and forth uh, with Leland Chi over at Lucasfilm trying to say okay. Assuming it's a certain character, what does this mean for the rest of the continuity, these other books? And, that, and that's sort of the thing that it's almost like a harness that a lot of Star Wars fans wear, wear going into anything new where we're sort of – we're burdened by what we think we know when Lucas has shown us time and time again that, you know, uh, unlearn what you have learned as Yoda would say because <laughs> he's just going to do 
whatever he feels like. And when he does it well, we get something like Revenge of the Sith, though uh, I think I'd agree um, with Thrasher there. I mean, this is there's a lot of Star Wars fans out there who would agree that maybe this prequel trilogy should have started with where Attack of the Clones started. That maybe yeah. we could have covered the Phantom Menace in an opening crawl or one of those, uh, oh, Galaxy, it's on my war, kind of <laughs> Clone Wars news feeds or something, because it felt like we very much got pushed very quickly through things in this film. I mean, it's two hours and, what, ten minutes, but or two hours and twenty, but still, it's a, it's a breakneck pace getting through this film. You know, something I pointed out to, um, to Matt before the show was it came to me that it seems like they, they, the reason these movies all feel so weird and compressed is because they should have been like six or seven movies as opposed to three. Uh, it's like they were limited by, oh, crap, we already named these four, five, and six, and they're not going to like it if we retcon this. So let's try to squeeze it all in one, two, and three. It's funny because Lucas, of course, started it. It's just going to be one film. No, it's going to be 12, starting with A New Hope. No, actually, A New Hope is number four. It's going to be yeah. nine. Nope, I always <laughs> intended for it to be six. I'm not going to make any more films. Well, see, Disney can make them because I said I'm not going to. You know, somewhere there's, <laughs> there are heads banging against desks. Oh, oh man. I mean, that just reminds me, I think in 1982 or so, Mad Magazine had an article about the Star Wars, what all the different episodes were going to be, and it was all about... Oh, that is a brilliant article. I've actually got that one. And I mean, it's just uh, ridiculous. I mean, what they, according to this Mad Magazine article from 1980, they're claiming that the uh, the fourth film, which is number three in the series, is called Making Wookiee. Uh <laughs> I mean, it, well, and the third film is really number two in the series, and it's very convoluted and uh, amusing. Well, if you I can think track the most that brilliant down. thing is that they did get some things right, such as they revealed that one of the twists was going to be that the Force was a character's father. <laughs> so, making Wookiee—that's the twist on who really was the father of Luke and Leia. It had something to it had something to do with Chewbacca being Han Solo's father or something weird like that. But then I think their I think their outline for Episode Seven it was going to be revealed that the Force was actually the father of of Luke and Leia. So that the the Chewbacca Han thing that's what that Han Solo spinoff movie is about that Disney's been talking about. You're exactly right, Nathan. I think that's uh, right on the money there. I we'll still think it's going to be Lando betraying Han again. Or for the first time, or just so there's a history of it, and Han never sees it coming. You know, there's so many different ways they can go with the upcoming movies and, and spinoff movies and so forth. It'll be just, it'll be exciting to get a lot of Star Wars back in the theater again. But uh, ostensibly, we're talking about Revenge of the Sith. It's very easy to get off track with all the different Star Wars things out there. I really enjoy um ian mcdermott as the emperor in this film he's great in all the films but this one really he gets a lot more time to chew the scenery and you get to see the transformation and uh oh that was a terrible makeup job though well it's very oh, God, different it like a rubber mask it's very different from return of the jedi how the emperor looks um Although what was interesting is that did like confirm a long-standing fan theory that I had first started hearing in the late '80s, which is that the Emperor is not all 
all that old. It's just that by using the dark the dark side of the force, he was prematurely aged. And then we see that borne out when Senator Palpatine starts whipping out the dark force lightning, and he starts to deteriorate right before our eyes. All right, and that was something that the Expanded Universe played around with. One of the first, actually the first Star Wars comic series from Dark Horse Comics, um, Dark Empire, ran with the idea mm. that he had constantly had these clone bodies and he kept having to switch between them because they were deteriorating. Um, hence being in a clone body that looks like Return of the Jedi Palpatine just six years after Return of the Jedi. It, was, it wasn't really something that, unfortunately, the Marvel series ever got a chance to really explore because they, they ended kind of prematurely just a little while after Return of the Jedi. But it, it's interesting to see how sort of Lucas drops these little tidbits out there and sometimes the, the, the authors run with them and it winds up bearing out. It's this great connection. And sometimes they run with them and then completely get plowed over. <laughs> and I, I, I do have to like- say out of all, all the, the new trilogy films, I like Palpatine in Revenge of the Sith better than I like him in Attack of the Clones or Phantom Menace. We really get to see him being outright evil and we also really get to see him – being good at manipulating people in a way that I, I actually found fairly believable. But wasn't that episode one hair just fabulous? <laughs> God. Uh, Albert before Einstein's the dark force him. Yeah, it was a bit Albert Einstein. Just the color of blonde. Like I, I, I could see you're trying to make him look younger, and that's really a, a tricky thing to do. It's it almost reminds me a bit of uh, Kenneth Branagh, uh, you know, directed and starred in a version of Hamlet. And he decided to dye his hair so much platinum blonde, it almost looked white and had the opposite effect of making him look older. But you uh, yeah, you had to do something, I think, to make him look younger and have that progression. And it's real fun in Revenge of the Sith to see the ship designs. How like, oh, there's a hint of a TIE fighter here. Oh, there's a hint of a Star Destroyer in this design. And it gets you uh, right into the action into the beginning and just the way the camera follows the ships going all around, you get the feeling maybe this is what George Lucas wanted the uh, space battle scenes to look like all along if he had the ability. It probably was. I mean, seeing all the, the frenetic action with the awesome space battles in, in this movie, have, have any of you guys ever read any of the Lensman books by E.E. E. Doc Smith? No. Well, they... They're they're very influential on Star Wars in, in a lot of ways, but the way the space battle we see is like right out of the space battles described in Lensman. There's just ships flying everywhere. Everyone's jockeying for position and trying to surround every. Everyone's trying to surround everybody else so they can just pelt you into slag from the middle of a of a death sphere of ships. It, it really it, it it really did take me back to the golden age of pulp science fiction. I think it's that's definitely one of the, the one that feels the most like a Star Wars movie of the prequels, because it has that that kind of action feel with the the political subplot, but it really has that that pacing to keep you on the edge of your seat the whole time, like the original Star Wars, where things were always happening. It's got the strength of really. I mean, yes, he is again. You know, filling the screen with tons and tons of CGI all over the place. But in this case, at least, I think more so than either of the other two prequels, it, it isn't something that detracts much of the time. Instead, he's able to 
create this expansive world that you can believe. You know, it's probably uh, the closest thing that this kind of sci-fi in terms of breadth and scope has to say something like Lord of the Rings on film, Mm -hmm. um, where you get this sense that, okay, there's this galaxy teeming around you, but we're able to narrow in, especially in that first battle sequence, narrow in to just the characters we care about. It is their story, but everything else is happening around them. There is a universe there, whereas the other ones, a lot of times, it felt like sometimes there were some very gratuitous, just, see, look what we can do with CG. Isn't this cool kind of shots? But this time it seemed like they somewhat uh, cut back on that, whether it's just a matter of, of timing. They didn't want to make the movie extra long, so they didn't want to add even more uh, larger, more gratuitous shots or what. But it seems like they managed to narrow the focus better with this um, than in the previous two. It could just be the first two. They were really kind of getting used to using the technology in the way that they did. And then this, they finally figured it out. And they know, aha, this is how we use this tool correctly to tell our story. Make room for huge plays with the HyperX Alloy Origin 65 mechanical gaming keyboard and the Pulsefire Haste wireless mouse. The Alloy Origin 65 has a functionally compact form factor, keeping the arrow keys while ditching the numpad and the F keys. The Pulsefire Haste is the lightest wireless mouse from HyperX, featuring a robust connection and the precision you need to click heads. The Alloy Origin 65 and Pulsefire Haste Wireless, a terrific twosome to keep your setup clean and clutter-free. Nathan, is there a scene from uh, Revenge of the Sith that is one that people don't talk about very much, but still is something that strikes you as important? Well, I mean, you have, I mean, just the emotional connections, I think, are the things that really make mm. uh, this the, the episode. Um, whether we're talking about uh, Anakin and Padme and his, uh, his development, sort of the traumatic childhood that he has, uh, or uh, the the way that Obi-Wan has to come to the realization of what Anakin has become, I would say what probably stands out is, that people don't usually point to would be Obi-Wan uh, first seeing the security footage of Anakin w- and doing what he did at the Jedi Temple where mm. you get this sense of trauma to him. Uh, Ewan McGregor's really good at subtle emotions showing on his face. I mean, he does a great job with the more overt things like, the, you know, the, you are my brother, Anakin, and whatnot. Um, but that scene to me was sort of that breaking of the man where he has to decide, you know, it's okay to kill um, someone that I care about because there's even worse if I don't. Um, For Anakin, uh, it's kind of hard to say, but he has moments, uh, especially near the end. You know, it's the scene that everybody would talk about, the confrontation with Obi-Wan right before the duel. But I think as much as people downplay Hayden Christensen's acting, and he's not exactly, you know, a Kenneth Branagh here. Uh, but, because uh, I'm a big fan of that Hamlet that you mentioned, uh, but I will say that if you think of it in terms of him being a psychologically damaged child who was forced to grow up way too fast, being put, having all this pressure put on him of being the chosen one and such, and being ripped away from his mother after a life of slavery, no wonder he comes off sounding somewhat like an angry child more than an angry adult when we get to those pivotal Moments. I mean, I, I think putting that in perspective makes Hayden Christensen's performances, especially in just the little bits, you know, him looking out across where Padme is in um, her apartments, looking back over um, his performance can maybe not rise to Ewan McGregor's level, but certainly be be better at those subtle moments. There's, there's all kinds of little nuanced emotional things that I think people gloss over in favor of the wham, bam, ex, you know, explosions stuff. Actually, I still there, there don't get how I would like to touch on. 
Yeah, go on. If I may, only because it was something that, that that really did bother me with Revenge of the Sith. Uh, th- dis- despite, like, you know, the, the acting ability of the people playing Anakin, the two actors playing Anakin in the prequel trilogy, I did have a lot of sympathy uh, with the character, which I, I really, really liked. I liked that I was having sympathy for the man who was going to become Darth Vader, and I was really looking forward to seeing what what would happen when he made that transition. And we all know that Darth Vader... <laughs> has you know did has done some terrible things he was the emperor's right hand but the moment they have anakin go into the jedi temple and start killing children i just immediately lost i i like felt i felt angry at the movie and angry at, at george lucas like i it's it's a level of atrocity so great that i start to not buy vader's eventual redemption in episode six well i think you kind of by the because of the gravity of the situation he's put in, you do miss some of the. You can see, even though the acting's not that great, there is some hesitation and where he, you know, he's uncomfortable with it, but for some reason he really does believe it needs to be done. And I think that's if you can look at it that way, it's a little more sympathetic. Like he's he's being forced through this terrible thing because of you know he believes that that's the way to save his wife and children. If you take the, sorry, go ahead. No, go on. No, that was all I really had to say. If you take the, uh, again, going back to the the Stover novelization, which has some input uh, from Lucas as far as the the way the characters are thinking and whatnot. Um, Now, this is something I'm assuming it was inserted more by him as opposed to being something from the film. I've heard inklings of it from uh, like earlier script drafts and such. But there's the whole issue of Anakin not being made a master. You know, you're on the Jedi Council, you are not made a master, and this angers him, it frustrates him, and it's something mm. that, that gets him to somewhat turn against the Jedi Order to a degree. In the novelization, they make a huge point about the fact that there are supposedly secret teachings that the Jedi have in their archives that he could get access to, but only masters have that access. And he thinks that somewhere in there is the key to saving her. So at every step of the way, he's being blocked in that regard, and I think that gives a lot of his actions, more death where it's not just, well, I guess I have to side with Palpatine or Sidious because he says he's the only one who can save Padme. Um, but it's more of a, you know, I've exhausted all of these options because it feels like in the film without a lot of background to it that he just kind of goes from, you know, oh no, what should I do to, okay, I must use the dark side. And honestly, if I were Anakin, I'd be sitting there saying, Okay, you said the thing about being able to to save people from dying. Now I've just pledged myself to you, and you're telling me that the ability to uh, uh, save someone's life from death uh, is something that only one has mastered, and that's Plagueis, not you? I'm sorry, did I just buy into something based on a bait-and-switch? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really one of the... I mean, the scene with the, the turn and how much you you buy that, you know, like in Attack of the Clones, there's not a whole lot they do with uh, with Anakin. And when you've got to do so much of the, the plot and the pieces coming together in one film, that stuff sort of gets glossed over. And that, that's real interesting about the novel. I don't. It's been a while since I've read it, so I didn't remember that. He's just a confused young man. I mean, look, yeah. at, his, look at his face in Episode 2 after the, he kisses Padme, <laughs> and then she says she shouldn't have done that, and he says, I'm sorry. The look on his face is, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I almost kind of wish they would have. I wonder what the performance would have been like had they kept Jake Lloyd in the role. And well, you know, according to him, was he Star old Wars enough to life. be able to pull it off? Oh wait, you were saying Jake Lloyd says Star Wars ruined his life? Yeah, he's he made he had a whole blog thing about how Star Wars ruined oh. so much for him, and then of course he starts showing up at the celebrations and raking it in. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, I, I'm I'm so sympathetic. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those tricky things. I mean, you know, there are there are some actors where they get more identified with Star Wars than with other things, but on the other hand, it's not as bad as say like the, the Superman, right? Well, that really gets stamped on you for whatever reason. I um, I don't know. I mean, you get like the Star Trek folks. Like Nimoy did not want to do anything to do with Star Trek, and now he's so into it because that's the only work he's really gotten. Well, the same thing happened with Adam West and Batman. There, there, there's and even in Tom Baker with Doctor Who. There, there is if you become so iconic, there is a trend to turn away from to have a hard break with what made you iconic, but then later in life to come back to it and really appreciate, you know, you know what, what that's brought you. Uh, Nathan, did the Blu-ray release of Revenge of the Sith have any tweaks to it? Actually, this one really didn't. I mean, yeah. you don't have okay. a lot of, of alterations. The only, only tweak, even for when they put it out on DVD, because they did more with one and two, was just they changed a quick cut uh, to a wipe and that was it. I mean, it's it's mm, pretty much okay. pristine theater release. That's pretty unusual because even with Attack of the Clones, there's like a few seconds of uh, extra sparks going off the jetpack of Jango Fett. And uh, they added a few of scenes actually into Phantom Menace. So. Well, you know, in the 3D version, if they finally do put it out, uh, uh, Anakin's going to cut Obi-Wan's legs off first, right before Obi-Wan <laughs> cuts his off. And then there'll be another edition where they cut them off kind of closer together. And yeah. Uh. I kind of wish... I know there's going to be one where they cut them off and they switch legs. <laughs> I kind of wish uh, for the whole 3D thing, I didn't get to see Phantom Menace in the 3D in the theater, unfortunately. I almost thought they could have done kind of like a, a best-of compilation of all the big action scenes from all six films into one release as 3D and just do it that way. Um, kind but... of like the old uh, story of Star Wars, the video, that DVD that... Uh, oh, yeah. I think it was Walmart sure. or whoever it was put right. out with... Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. Where because people want to see primarily the action scenes in 3D, I, I would think. But you know, I don't you know. Don't, I, you don't want to see Jar Jar get his tongue zapped over and over in 3D? What? <laughs> no. Uh, I maybe want to see Jar Jar selling out the Republic to. In 3D. <laughs> in 3D. Well, that's you know that's something about Jar Jar for for all for all the the, the fan hate that'll often get get dumped on Jar Jar. It, it seems almost fitting that he's the character that kind of sells everybody out by by you know really fighting for Palpatine's emergency powers. It's it almost feels like completely set up. Yeah, like they said, it they had to go with the most innocent possible character to be the one to make this supposedly innocent decision to turn bad. I actually am am almost saddened that they didn't give him at least a couple of lines, perhaps in Revenge of the Sith, maybe mm. even of regret or something. But instead, we just see him briefly at Padme's funeral, and that's it. Yeah, I, I recall an interview with Ahmed Best where he said there was a, a dialogue scene between Jar Jar Binks and uh, Palpatine at some point that I don't think was ever in any of the DVD or Blu-ray releases. And I, I would have liked some closure, because it was nice they did some more of the political stuff with him in the second one, and to get some sort of payoff, because, hey, it's your last uh, prequel film, uh, would have been good. 
what, you know, speculating on the fate of, of Jar Jar Binks, and and of, and of course, you know, we, we we can't assume that this is canon, and I've already made my feelings about canon clear on previous episodes, but in the Star Wars video game The Force Unleashed, there's an Imperial commander who is a, a big game hunter, and you go into his palace fortress, and he has all these trophies of all of his different kills, including like the stuffed and mounted head of a crate dragon and a rancor. And one of his trophies is a Gungan in carbonite that has the Jar Jar Brink Bink shocked expression on its face. <laughs> it could just be an Easter egg. Yeah. Well, People probably make Star Wars is. games have a pretty good sense of humor like that. Yeah. Uh, I really like the montage at the end of this film with the music where it kind of shows what happens to the different characters and it doesn't use that much dialogue. But there was originally a scene created that was a deleted scene on the DVD of a. Uh, it would it would have shown Yoda go back to Dagobah. Nathan, do you think do you miss that scene? Do you wish that would have been in there, or do you think it gets a bit too comical when you show? Oh, here's what all the zillions of characters, you know, are doing to tie into the other films. I mean, it's one of those things where. I mean, it, it depends on pacing. It depends on the way that it mm. would have been initially inserted. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm sometimes surprised by some of the decisions made on the cuts. There are these these nice moments that we look at as a deleted scene and go, "Wow, that would have been awesome to have in there." But then you have certain moments where they seem to have added in like just the goofy little, you know, bit of humor or something here and there that really didn't need to be there. Or hey, let's make sure we linger a little bit longer on George and his family members at the opera house kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that the way it plays out plays out pretty well. I'm not sure that you could have gone with sort of a uh, a Return of the King kind of ending. You know, yeah. where, okay, the movie is over. Now this is where this character went, and this character went, and this character went, and remember this character from the background? Yes, there's him. Uh, I think it, it it ends well. I mean, the only thing I would complain about the ending is simply the no, but yeah. now that it's been inserted into Return of the Jedi, at least it has that sense of being one of those uh, musical beats or musical riffs that Lucas refers to in the films when he thinks of them in a musical standpoint. You know, speaking speaking of the 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 the, end, the ending of the film, you know, when, when we get those, we kind of get one scene where they like really quickly attempt to answer any lingering questions about how this trilogy hooks up to the remaining trilogy. You, I'm going to teach you how to contact the dead and you, uh, you're going to take these droids, but you're going to mind wipe that droid and you, you're going to do it. Like it, it seems, it seems like a little bit too much work. I, I almost would have been happier if we just saw sort of Yoda quietly walk away. Cause, cause we all understand he will end up in Dagobah. We don't need him spelling it out. Uh. Especially after getting the – or if they were going to spell it out, maybe it could have been spelled out a little bit more. Instead of having uh, just Yoda and Obi-Wan sitting there at the table talking, hey, by the way, you're going to talk to Qui-Gon's ghost. Remember him? Um, I mean they set it up well. If In episode two, we've got Anakin when he kills the Tusken Raiders. You can hear Qui-Gon saying, Anakin, no. Right. They set it up. And yet it's not there. I mean, heck, the Clone Wars cartoon series in the Mortis trilogy where – the third episode abandons most of the rules of the first two. Um, still managed to do more with Qui-Gon and the communing with Obi-Wan than Revenge of the Sith did. And it was the one that was supposed to give us the answer of how the Force Ghost thing works later on. Why didn't Qui-Gon vanish like we thought all Jedi did, at least at the time? 
Well, I guess I, I guess the whole deal with like the, the Force Ghost that kind of goes into the the secret teachings, which were which were I guess not mentioned much in the films, but much more important things in the novel. I guess we we can assume that the ability to become a Force Ghost or commune with the Force Ghost is just a secret teaching that that hadn't come up in in the the film yet. But it's it's I kind of I I generally I prefer no exposition to like blatant obvious exposition. I mean, that scene with Yoda is a weird one because they're just tap dancing around the fact that they couldn't get Liam Neeson against a green screen for a few days. And yeah, I will, I will teach you how to appear to your son or I will teach you how to teach (laughs) Anakin to appear to his son in the future by de-aging himself. Have you seen the DVDs? <laughs> oh, in mere seconds, he will teach them he, him that. Yeah, exactly. In a few seconds, while you might be able to connect on a, a man-to-man level and not him trying to kill you. Well, maybe they can do like a Jedi mind meld and the, inf- and the information is imprinted on his brain. Well, he is more machine than man. Ah, ah very good. It's on a USB drive somewhere. <laughs> Stick it into his Maybe he stole torso. it some... He found it on, you know, raiding the archives or... Ellen, in 15 seconds, what is Nice Games Club? It's our game dev podcast. Steven, help! Game mechanics, accessibility, art and animation, level design, prototyping. Everything that goes into making video games. How's that, Mark? Nice. Listen to Nice Games Club wherever you get your podcasts or at nicegames.club. Hello, my name's Jonathan Dunn, host of the O3C podcast. Every week I'm joined by my two best gaming buddies, Chris and Minty, and we talk about the games we're playing, the games we love, and how they rank alongside our sacrosanct top 100 favourite video games of all time lists. Deep dives into gaming mechanics, history and lore abound, all topped off with lashings of irreverent wry British wit, witterings and wisdom. For details on the show and more, head to o3c.games and tune in every Monday on the HyperX Podcast Network. Make room for huge plays with the HyperX Alloy Origin 65 mechanical gaming keyboard and the Pulsefire Haste wireless mouse. The Alloy Origin 65 has a functionality compact form factor, keeping the arrow keys without the numpad and function keys. The Pulsefire Haste is the lightest wireless mouse from HyperX, featuring a robust connection up to 100 hours of battery life and is even water resistant. The Alloy Origin 65 and Pulsefire Haste Wireless. Keep your setup clean and clutter-free with the Alloy Origin 65 mechanical keyboard and the Pulsefire Haste Wireless Mouse. <laughs> what did you guys think about the inclusion of Chewbacca and, and all the Wookiees in this film? I hate that. I think bringing Chewbacca in without having more... Because what then bothers me is the fact that Luke never mentions Yoda... To Chewbacca and, Yo- and Chewbacca growler, hey, I know that guy. Yeah, it does sort of be. It does sort of come off as a, as a cameo. Like Chewbacca is such an important character in the original trilogy. If you're going to have him at all, he really should be doing something very important and probably deserves a little story of his own. I just, I just would have put him teaming up with someone other than Yoda, because those two are so key in the in the in the you know original trilogy. There, I wouldn't want them interacting because then it wouldn't bring questions in to somebody's head about, hey, why don't they know each other? Why didn't you know this come up in conversation with Luke or something like that? Oh, hey, so do you guys think that Elper, Emperor Palpatine is, for all intents and purposes, Anakin's father? Yeah, sure. Do you want, do you want the official answer? Wait, is there an official answer? 
There is an official answer. Oh, um, really? Excellent. Thanks, thanks to the novel Darth Plagueis that was released recently, which had been on the drawing board and then canceled and then brought back again with input uh, from Lucas and Lucasfilm. Um, Darth Plagueis was playing around with the idea of extending life, essentially trying to find immortality in some form or another. Uh, it was research carried over from his master, Darth Tenebris, and it was uh, research that Darth Sidious was trying to continue with. Um, and we're talking like all the way up until The Phantom Menace. Thanks to the Darth Plagueis novel, uh, Plagueis is alive in Episode One. He oh. doesn't die hmm. until near the end of Episode One. And Maul was always kind of just a tool. I mean, he's kind of a tool anyway in a different sense. But he was always just sort of a tool um, for them, never necessarily uh, meant to be a true Sith Apprentice perhaps. Um, but in that novel, we get this sense uh, in, a, in a sequence, I forget exactly how it's worded. It's the idea that as Plagueis is able to essentially regenerate or create or uh, extend life, as he makes this discovery, as Palpatine says, right, in the film here about how, you know, extending life, saving life, uh, to stop someone from dying is something that Plagueis had figured out. Um, the Force kind of in response to that generates its own in the form of Anakin. That it's not so much that it's them creating him, which is what was actually kind of hinted a couple of times early on in a, a Vader guide magazine and whatnot. But they're more explicitly saying, saying that, yeah, if, they are, if they're responsible, if the Sith are responsible for Anakin, it's like a, a once-removed kind of thing. It's, hmm. Anakin is the equal and opposite reaction to what Plagueis was doing. Of course, that assumes that Lucas doesn't decide to then say, no, I don't think so, and change it. We all know that the first big continuity thing was the Clone Wars dates in the Timothy Zahn novels early on, and those were dates that came straight from Lucas, and then he decided, nah, I think I'm going to make him younger. Well, you know, speaking of, of, of you know, Anakin being created, I, I, that, I guess that all ties into the, the prophecy of being the, the one who is to bring balance to the Force, but... I've, I really want to know more about that prophecy. Who gave it? What are the details? What does bringing balance to the Force mean? I just feel like it's it's an idea that's just dropped onto us in the first film, and then it's just kind of left to simmer in the back of our minds. We, we never really get a bigger context for it. Yeah, and it winds up being changed. Lucas referred to the, and we always just kind of assume, you know, balance must mean, you know, a certain amount of darkness, a certain amount of light. Lucas, in interviews... Um, said sort of the opposite. He said that to him, balance meant that uh, what is natural, what is good, um, is the natural state of the universe. So, so the light side is the natural state of things. Uh, and those things that are corrupt, like the dark side, must be removed. Sort of like the dark side is a cancer, and balance doesn't mean literal balance. It means a healed galaxy, essentially, where the light hmm. side is the one that comes out on top. But then he provides a completely new interpretation of it to Dave Filoni and the Clone Wars team for those Mortis episodes where it's, no, it's more like there's this strange planet out there inside a monolith, and the planet, uh, as the force shifts in the galaxy, or uh, on this planet, it shifts in the universe, and Anakin is meant to go and replace this ancient being, etc., etc. I mean, they got this whole new backstory to the balance which so far they haven't revisited. But it's the idea that because Anakin refused to take the balancing role on the planet Mortis um, after the deaths of the three oh God, previous that, ones. Oh, God. Now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that he is causing the galaxy to slide 
into darkness. Mm. That rather than I always being the pictured that as being like he, a nightmare he was having, though. Like it's well, some sort it's, of weird vision in his head because it just didn't make any sense to me as yeah, a Star I would Wars hope, fan. I would hope that at least some <laughs> of it was meant to be, but they have at least uh, acknowledged that this is at least for the moment uh, the main interpretation that they're going to be going with for the whole prophecy of the Chosen One. Uh, and it has been something that Lucasfilm has backed up enough that uh, recently and there's a novel series called Fate of the Jedi, and they made the main antagonist in that story a direct connection back to those three characters on Mortis, the father, the son, and the daughter. Oh, so, okay. Um, I don't know. I'm just – it's one of those things where you're right. This film does a really good job of giving us a great Star Wars action story. It's actually my favorite of the Star Wars films. Hmm. I love this film. I'm a big fan of the tragic aspect of it. Um, uh, just as I, I, again, I mentioned Hamlet. I mean, I'm a big fan of that sort of story. But in giving us so much action, so many great set pieces, there was a lot that it seemed could have been in there, more depth that could have been there that wasn't, which is why I'm so glad that I read the novel first. I'm so glad that I saw Stover's work in it, that I didn't come out feeling like I missed anything. I came out feeling like, huh, that's what this you know, was meant to mean you know, in the reading. It's it, it's an odd one, though the one tragic aspect that still annoys the crap out of me, I'm, I'm betting it probably annoys the crap out of you guys, Padme losing the will to live. Yeah. I, yeah. I just had two babies. I'm going to die now because there's just nothing worth living for. Poster child. Yeah, I, I would buy it. Anakin's just going to kill been, them. I'll die. I, I would buy it if it had been a complication brought about by childbirth in a very chaotic time where maybe they couldn't get the best the best medical technology to help her out. But yeah, her just kind of getting, well, I'm done. That does seem a bit much. Unless just think of it this know, way. All of the force, you know, the life force within her just went into Luke so that Luke could grow up and be powerful enough to, you know, defeat Vader. That's good. Think of it that way. I've just hoped that, um, and and they've sort of hinted at this a couple of times. They haven't explicitly said it in any of the materials. It's the idea that that it was the choke itself that essentially is the cause of death, but that she should have been able to fight to hang on and have that repair, and yet she slipped away in agony. I mean, I know Lucas was trying to go for the sort of classic tragic ending where someone literally could lose the will to live and that in and of itself takes their life away but it, it leaves to me and i know a lot of fans it's always left a little bit of a bad taste in our mouths afterwards luckily at least anakin did choke her and we can always blame the domestic abuse for the main reason why she died yes. luckily he did strangle his wife uh, <laughs> exactly oj would be proud uh, I, mean, I look at you know uh, revenge of the sith and it just makes me think of one plot thread from uh, Attack of the Clones was, you know, about Jango Fett and then Boba Fett holding Jango Fett's, uh, his father's head and sort of, you feel like, oh, they're going to pay this off in episode three somehow. And they never have Boba Fett come back. And I kind of wish they uh, they would have. He's all over in the Clone Wars. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's still pretty young. So to, to really kind of come back as Boba Fett as you know it, he, he would still be pretty young yeah, during uh, Revenge of the Sith. Well, you know, as long as we're we're you know talking about these other these other sort of uh, ex- we've been talking a lot about how how this movie intersects with the uh, expanded universe. Does do you guys think it stands alone as its own film, or do you really need to know all of these other sources to really appreciate it? 
uh, while it stands alone, it certainly doesn't hurt if you've read the novel or, or you know watch the Clone Wars TV show or all this other stuff that you can add on to what's already there. I mean, this is a very dense film. A lot of things happen in it. Uh, my my grandma saw Revenge of the Sith without watching any other Star Wars movies, and she really got wrapped up in it. And I don't know how oh. she wasn't confused out of her mind, but because um, old people are tough. Well, well, she's really uh, she was a real uh, Catholic lady, and she just found you know sort of a the the devil corrupts this this boy and all these things. She liked it, I think, from that angle without necessarily being a fan of science fiction. Um, well, there's definitely those mythological themes yeah. like that in in Star Wars, and that's I think part of the draw that everybody's had with it. There's a there's a terrific uh, interview that Lucas did. Well, I guess it's it's put out as a documentary now, and it should be called an interview or documentary with Bill Moyers of Star Wars and mythology. I think if I'm right, you can buy it off the PBS website. I think um, where he talks about you know all these these mythological tropes, the uh, the tragic things that he was trying to build into the saga to create the whole modern myth, you know, tying back into the Joseph Campbell and whatnot. Um, I don't know. I as to whether it could stand on its own. I would say that the film can stand on its own, and the saga of the films could stand on their own. But I will say that I think the experience is greatly enriched by the other materials that are out there. I think that's part of why fandom, really any time that something shifts the landscape on us, there's that extreme polarization, some extreme uh, excitement and a lot of negativity. We're going to see that here um, at least as of the time we're recording, we're going to see it at the end of this week, uh, at the end of Clone Wars Season 5. Whatever happens at the end of Clone Wars Season 5, people are going to be polarized um, because it will somehow shift the landscape. Uh, episode 7, hallelujah, we're finally getting more Star Wars movies, but wait, what will that do to all of my novels and comics that take mm. place decades and yeah. decades into the future? Sure. It's that it's elation mixed with um, almost a skepticism um, that it's going to be okay when really, as long as it's more of the saga that we love, it's going to be okay. Um, and I think that's the way that, that we almost have to walk into the prequel films. They are not uh, classics on the same level as the stuff we saw in the original three, certainly. But um, can they stand on their own? Sure. Are they enriched by other stuff? Sure. Are they a part of Star Wars that we know and love, warts and all? Absolutely. Okay, I think on that note, we should uh, go around and give a rating of uh, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, uh, on a scale of, uh, you know, one to five stars. I'll begin. I, I think I would give Revenge of the Sith um, four, four stars. I think the, the action is pretty good. The effects are better than some of the other prequel films. And yet, like, I don't know. I Part of me I wish is, makes me wish I would not have seen the deleted scenes on the DVD, because there's all this interesting stuff on there with Padme has scenes about forming an early version of the Rebel Alliance. Like, yeah, there's more they could have done, but with all the story they had to do in this film, I think they did a, a darn good job. Uh, BJ? Uh, I got to give it like a four and a half, because I think I, I would give it five if it be, if it was actually ending up a series as good as uh, as good as that one this one movie was. You know, if we'd been really building up to it, I think it would be deserving of the five. But like you said, there's so much story that really would have been great to have, like the Rebel Alliance thing. Or even, I actually like the whole death of Shakti scene. Mm. You know, I also like where she shows up again later, but that's just... It, I think it's it's just short of making that this, you know, of a five-star Star Wars movie. 
Uh, Thrasher. I'm I'm gonna to have to give it three stars. And that's that's just you know based on the impressions that I've had of it. Although now that we have have had this discussion. I think I really do need to go back to that movie, look at it with fresh eyes, and and look at it as its own film, kind of separate from from the other of the other Star Wars films, and just really judge it purely on its own merits. And I may very well like it more, but n- until that day comes, I'm going to give it a uh, three stars based on my experience with it in the past. And uh, Nathan, I'm going to go with um, I would say probably uh, four four and a half although I would rate the novelization of it a five, and if you were to read the novelization and watch the movie, that combined experience, absolutely a five. Uh, I can't state enough how much my love of that film was enhanced by that reading experience. It's one of the few times I could say that, but man, did it make all the difference for me. And they do a good job with the audiobook on it, too? Oh, yeah. The audiobook was uh, excellent. It's ungodly long because it's unabridged, but yeah. it is excellent. Oh, great. Okay, so we have two more segments here on the uh, on the sequel cast. One of which is uh, pitch a sequel, in which we do a sequel to the you know pitch an idea for a sequel for the movie we're talking about. So I guess presumably this would be something that would take place in between episode three and episode four, A New Hope. Uh, I would have it be about. I think you could do something uh, a standalone sequel to this about Yoda. On Dagobah, how does he spend his time? Does he just sits there eating frogs all day? Does he build a hut? Does he have an old weird... Does he have his own experience in a cave on Dagobah? I think if you're going to do a, a sequel and, you know, all the talk of the new Star Wars films and spinoffs made me think of, you know, what if they did a Yoda one, what they could do? I think that'd be a very interesting sort of story. I'd love to see him get a hold of some other Jedi that still remain and yeah. lead them, you know, to, to go into hiding too and stuff. You know, his interaction of that, of trying to keep the Jedi alive mm. to be able to bring balance back. Uh, so, oh, go on. I mean, there's so many stories out there that are already, already sort of essential yeah. sequels to these. I would say um, in, the, in Star Wars as it is now, I would love to see something set after Revenge of the Sith which somehow ties up some of the characters that hopefully will still be alive after the Clone Wars cartoon series and give us a story that, yes, the galaxy is getting darker, show us that darkness, and yet give us the idea that there is a ray of hope out there, that it's not going to take 19 years and the arrival of Luke Skywalker on the scene for there to be any hope, that the spark Mm. is still out there, something that could give us something moving, um, but at the same time not compromise the feel of either trilogy and perhaps even bridge the feel of both in a way that uh, some complain that this film's ending uh, was too perhaps abrupt um, to do, though not sure I'd agree with the assessment. Thrasher? So we're looking for Star Wars The Old Hope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> well, my sequel, my sequel would be uh, Star Wars Episode 3 and a half. Uh, guess who's uh, guess who's darthing to dinner? Uh, a, a title worthy of you, Matt. Yeah. Uh, where the the pre- the premise is, you know, Dar- Darth Vader. You know, he's being, you know, the, the he's helping the Empire grow. He's being the Emperor's right hand. But you know what? He misses his family. So this one's going to be a sequel. Is going to be a comical farce where Owen and Beru get a postcard or a, a hologram card from Vader saying he wants to come and visit and have dinner with him and get back in touch with the family. So the whole, 
the whole movie is a farce where Owen and Beru are doing everything they possibly can to hide the toddler Luke Skywalker from Darth Vader. And hmm. th- there's all sorts of like Home Alone style slapstick. Does crazy like, old Ben down the road come to visit? Oh yeah, he'll, he'll be involved. <laughs> he, he will help. But he's no good with kids. You know? <laughs> 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 he's he's not old enough to begin the training, but he's still too young. Uh, and uh, he'll be played by Dud- uh, Dudley Moore for some reason. And uh, so there'll be lots of slapstick, lots of farce, lots of like Vader turning his back and then the toddler Luke Skywalker running behind him. It will be a laugh riot for the whole family. Oh, very Someone's good. changing diapers out there. Uh. It's, uh, it's something <laughs> I've not smelt since. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. uh. Jeez. Okay, with that image firmly in my mind of a Star Wars characters smelling uh, full diapers, diapers you full of the Force. The They're very good. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's great. Um, before we go into our final segment, I just want to mention that uh, you can listen to Sequel Cast on Stitcher, which is an app you can listen to podcast streaming on the go. Just go to stitcher.com/sequelcast to download the app and have Sequel Cast added as one of your favorites automatically. All right. Uh, Wait, do, do I get to pitch mine? Oh, I'm sorry, BJ. Okay, I'm actually going to pitch you the uh, the script for uh, one of our Star Wars LARPs at Gen Con. Okay. Which happens to take place on the day of Order 66. So the unassuming young Lando Calrissian has gone into business creating a Starliner along with a Mon Calamari and a Gungan. <laughs> uh, on the maiden voyage... Uh, there happens to be a space pirate on board, as well as Republic dignitaries with clones, uh, a couple of Jedi, just for throwing a little fun there, some separatists, and a little bit of everything. Uh, all, of, all along, you're, you're following your regular Gilligan's Island and Love Boat themes of just str- weird comedy and strange appearances, followed by a, a love story between a clone and a Jedi and not wanting to kill her, even though all their brothers are. Because I really love the whole the clone's individuality uh, playing with. And I'd really want to play with that in a movie. I think that would, would take a, a really nice mm. film. Have you, um, out of curiosity, have you ever checked out the Republic Commando novels before? No, I've heard they're pretty good, but I, I haven't read novels since about 2005. Uh, they're, they uh, are... They're quite good. There's there's a big focus on at kind of what you're talking about. You've got a, a a Jedi who is in love with a clone, uh, well, Republic Commando, so a clone with a little bit more freedom and whatnot. Uh, and it plays out actually through a novel called Order 66 in which that uh, – it's not exactly that scenario, but you have a situation where she's put in danger. The, the clones are questioning their individuality. It's actually um, one of the more divisive series at the time because – uh, of the way that it handled the clones, the way that it looked somewhat negatively at the Jedi. And um, that was actually, oddly enough, we've been talking about the Clone Wars cartoon series. That's the one that when the Clone Wars cartoon series took a very different path with the Mandalorians, they, uh, she pretty much closed up shop. She had the, the writer Karen Travis uh, stopped writing for Star Wars, just didn't really see a way to continue the way that it, it had been done. But it's an, an excellent series if you're into that kind of, of, of moral I'll dilemma. Check it out. Because I, I really, I really dig that, and I think that's one of the strong points of the Clone Wars series, is really playing with the the, the clones and treating them not as droids, as you know, biological droids, and as individuals developing. And I think that was that's really the strong point. And it, 
it gets glossed over a lot by like the funny, hey, let's follow R2-D2 on an adventure type stuff. But you get those in there. Um, I really like the ones from the fourth season where it's the, the Jedi who's gone to the dark side and he's killing off his clones on purpose. And they're questioning where their loyalty should lie. It's a really great series of episodes. Aside from the fact that the Jedi is the, the, the same species as Dexter, that character that Tharasha really likes. Uh, oh, yeah. Dual-wielding, double-bladed lightsabers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pong Krill, the, the, the Umbaran arc. It's probably one of the high points of that series. It's absolutely outstanding. And you've got a character named Tup, who's based at least partially, uh, they say, on Tupac Shakur. So, hey. He's even got the little uh, tattoo of the teardrop thing going on. Cool. Well, our uh, last segment here really quick is uh, what you're watching. We talk about a piece of media we've been enjoying. Um, you know, there's one video game all my friends have been talking about that I'm just finally getting into, and it's kind of an older one. It's the original Bioshock game Ooh. on the Xbox 360. And, uh, like, the graphics don't hold up. Great. I mean, they're okay. They do the job, but I mean, the, the sound design is really effective. Have you played that, Nathan? Uh, yeah, I played the first and the second one, or at least part of the second one. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's a really nice, really nice period piece where they set it. It's sci-fi, but it's set in uh, our past in sort of a different timeline where it's familiar yet not. They're they're great at world building in that. Yeah, I'll be excited to see what they do with the sequel, Bioshock Infinite, that's coming out. It's it's a sequel prequel that's also from another different timeline, which may or may not have any connection to the other Bioshock games. That makes it a what the heck will. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. They've <laughs> sent a lot of contradictory information about what the game's actually uh, like. What's uh, something you've been uh, enjoying, Nathan? Uh, well, um, I would say uh, one thing that stands out uh, game-wise, I'm a big uh, survival horror video game fan. And despite the bad reviews from folks that seem like they only played about the first hour of it, um, I had just picked up a Wii U. And the one game that I have for it that I'm playing and plan to play again is called Zombie U. Okay. It's survival horror where you you there's there's a real stake in it. I mean, if you uh, you're a character who's got all their gear, got your weapons and everything that you need, you're being helped by sort of a mysterious voice over the radio, and if you die. If you uh, and it's very easy to die, right? If if you're not facing the right direction, the zombie comes after you. You're dead. Uh, as your health wears down, it's easier for them to overpower you. You're dead. And if you get bitten, um, instead of just getting a new life, you wake up as another character back in your safe house. And to get all your gear back, you have to find the zombie of the old you, huh. kill him, and get it all back. So there's a real se- a, like a palpable sense of dread. When you get into a situation where there's a lot of zombies, the, the last five minutes of that game is the first time in a very long time that any game has given me enough of an adrenaline rush to leave me shaking for a good ten minutes after it was over. Um, I loved Zombie U. Uh, if, it, it's a reason to own a Wii U if you're a, a classic survival horror kind of guy. And here I thought you were going to say Colonial Marines. <laughs> oh, oh. Nothing but... <laughs> uh, aliens game, yeah. Well, I do enjoy skeet shooting. No, <laughs> uh, BJ, what's something you've enjoyed? Uh, well, aside from uh, you know wrapping up for the end of the season for Clone Wars, um, I actually just picked up 
uh, I watch um, Face Off on Sci-Fi, and they yes. after it this week they premiered their new show, Robot Combat League, starring Amanda Lucas as one of the combat uh, the the robot jockeys. So I, I was actually trying to watch that uh, right before uh, we started the show here, and it's it was pretty entertaining so far because I'll be damned if they actually are bipedal fighting robots. Like I thought it was gonna. Like have a bunch of CG in there, and it looks pretty realistic from, from um, you know my learnings. So is it a person in a robot suit fighting another person in a robot well, it's, suit? It's or? a fully autonomous suit. Okay, but the you have two people driving. You have one person in this like seat with like controls in front of them, doing a lot of the other technical stuff. But then you have an athlete in this harness, like with these, you know, things on their arms to control the fists and, um, and stuff of the robots. When you have Lucas family money, this is Rock'em Sock'em Robots. <laughs> well, I that think it's very cool. They really, yeah. they're, they're fancy looking, but you know, I don't think they spent on this, as much on this as they have on some other weird productions that sci-fi channels done. So I'm not sure this is Lucas money involved. Um, so, they, so they're not built necessarily building their own, or is it they're, they're building their own, but they're they're already built. Sci-fi. They were already built by this guy who's been like building, you know, robot demonstration robots and stuff. Huh. Huh. Well, the design flaw in her robot though is that you can you can wrap a wire around its legs and then her <laughs> whole robot falls forward. Well, that's that's the the cool thing about it. Instead, they're not like Asimo where they're completely autonomous with the big giant backpack. They have like a T-bar thing to keep them from tipping over backwards, but they still walk on two legs. It just kind of helps them balance having this thing behind them. Sounds like a really cool show. I have to check that out. Uh, Thrasher. Uh, it is on Hulu. I know. Is it? The- oh, okay. That's where I was watching it. <laughs> cool. Uh, Thrasher. Well, well, uh, well. What I've been watching. Uh, so, uh, my. Uh, I've I've long been uh, a, a Doctor Who fan. I think I've been a Doctor Who fan since like 1989 or so. But uh, uh, my girlfriend has only very recently been introduced to Doctor Who, and what ended up happening is she had been rewatching Battlestar Galactica off of a streaming service, and then for whatever reason, Battlestar Galactica became unavailable. And she saw that they had a classic Doctor Who archive, so we actually spent most of last night watching classic Doctor Who serials. Uh, we saw a William Hartnell serial and a Patrick Troughton serial, and uh, I, we, we both had a really good time. Those are some good episodes. I've actually been doing that as uh, well, some of the classic stuff as well. I, I'm a big modern Doctor Who fan. I got into it a cool. couple of years ago thanks to some friends of mine that uh, uh, I attended a convention with. I'm slowly getting my fiance into it as well but i went through and now i'm going and trying to watch all the all the doctors in a row i'm done with one hmm. i'm moving on to two but most of the ones for two are these fan reconstructions at the point that i'm at so it's still image listen to yeah, he has and, more lost ooh. episodes than anyone else yeah so i'm uh. i'm working my way slowly through that but i'm eager to get to some of the more the classics i've only seen eight through the current doctor so there's nothing from the classics other than hartnell that i really feel familiar with I happen to say I, I really I actually prefer Inspector Space Time to uh, Doctor <laughs> Who. <laughs> On um, do you watch Community, Nathan? I don't. I'm somewhat familiar with it from the original pilot and first couple episodes, but beyond that, no. There's a, a they do a whole thing on there called Inspector Space Time, which is a takeoff on Doctor Who, 
and they recently did an episode at an as a uh, Inspector Space Time convention. But they have they have some fun sort of making fun of that uh, of the premise. But I mean, really, that's one of the Doctor Who is one of the longest running science fiction shows ever. It's just uh, it is the longest running. Is science it the fiction longest? Show. Okay, I stand corrected. And I believe it may actually be longest running uh, non soap opera fiction series as well. Pretty cool. I think General Hospital technically has the jump on. Although it, it kind of is a soap opera because you know the main character keeps dying and coming back. As different people, <laughs> but, yeah. but that's by design, <laughs> right? No, no, they just wrote it in the. It's just a device to keep to explain to having different actors. Nah. Well, Nathan, it's been a lot of fun having you here on the sequel cast to talk about Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, quite. So, thank you very much for having me. Oh, sure. Uh, where's a place people can uh, check out your uh, your podcast and novels and everything? Well, my uh, podcasts right now, I'm on Republic Forces Radio Network uh, over at RepublicForces.com discussing the Clone Wars over uh, for EU Talk in Star Wars Beyond the Films at StarWarsReport.com. I run StarWarsFanWorks.com, which is where you can find other Star Wars fan audio productions by me and others, along with my Star Wars Timeline Gold, the most comprehensive Star Wars chronology available anywhere. Uh, Been around since 1997. um, And... I guess if you're looking for my original fiction works, like Greater Good, a uh, time travel, sci-fi, telepath kind of thing, um, that's all at NathanPButler.com. But they're all, they all tend to be sort of linked together. You hit one, you're likely bound to find another one. Oh, great. So um, for the uh, sequel cast, this is Matt. And Thrasher. And BJ. And Nate. Same... He learned how to create life. Hold me, Annie, like you did on that lake by Naboo. We've already done that one. Okay. <laughs>